Good morning. This may be the last audio-only sermon before we gather again next Sunday, Lord willing. Stay tuned for more information via email. Would you bow with me in prayer? O oh God, meet us now through your word and spirit. We need you. We trust and depend on you. You, O oh Lord, are our hope and shield. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're beginning where we left off last week in the New Testament. In other words, we're starting 2 Corinthians. As most of you are aware, Paul wrote more than two letters to this church, but only two of the four are in the New Testament. Not everything Paul wrote was considered as inspired or breathed out by the Holy Spirit and a part of Holy Scripture, or meant to be a part of Holy Scripture by the Lord. All of what God meant to comprise his Holy Word was recognized as Holy Scripture and is a part of the Bible we have. This does not mean that what Paul wrote in those lost letters did not accurately convey Paul's apostolic authority and teaching. It just means God did not intend for that particular writing to be a part of his holy word. I'm going to refer to the two letters that we do not have as letters A and B. Letter A was the letter referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 as a letter written before 1 Corinthians that he was following up on in 1 Corinthians. So, letter A is known as Paul's previous letter written before 1 Corinthians. Letter B was what Paul referred to as the letter written out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. So, letter B is known as Paul's severe or painful letter written before he wrote 2 Corinthians. It also helps to get a picture of the three visits Paul made to Corinth, founding, painful, and final. Paul's founding visit to Corinth when the church was founded was part of his second missionary journey. Paul stayed for 18 months from the fall of AD 50 to the spring of 52. After this year and a half visit, Paul wrote letter A to deal with several problems, but especially one particular big sin issue. He also wrote our 1 Corinthians letter in answer to a list of questions from the Corinthians. Paul made what is called his short, painful visit, the second visit to Corinth, after hearing of more issues while again in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. 
this short visit did not go well, which is why Paul wrote what is referred to as the severe or painful letter B. We know from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians that this painful letter was sharp in tone. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4 and also in chapter 7 verses 8 and 9. We read in those passages, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. We also see here that it was used by the Lord to bring about some of the changes Paul had hoped for. The last final three-month visit Paul made to Corinth was later on his third missionary journey after writing our 2 Corinthians letter from Macedonia. Since we just finished going through 1 Corinthians, it should be somewhat easier to understand much of what concerned the Apostle Paul about this church that he founded. But just the fact that a second letter was necessary should raise some questions. In 1 Corinthians, Paul basically went through a list of questions that Corinthians wanted to clear up. In 2 Corinthians, Paul still has to continue dealing with the Corinthians' tendency to think in worldly ways, especially about what matters most in any leader. As a result, leaders who displayed worldly characteristics began to have a lot of influence, way too much influence, upon many in the Corinthian congregation. Well, what are some of these worldly characteristics? An appearance or air of importance, strength, and confidence? An ability to speak eloquently, powerfully, and persuasively? In other words, being a rhetorician. Popularity and admired social standing, and an ability to understand life in a comprehensive and pragmatic way. In other words, they wanted their leaders to be outwardly impressive. But don't some or a few people just naturally have more visible talents and personality and creativity and strength and looks and ideas and resources and standing, etc.? Well, of course. But remember, Paul's admonition in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, he wrote, 
be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. It matters the most how you treat people, not how you appear to people. It matters the most how you treat people, not how you appear to people. Why? Because how you treat others shows what's really in your heart. You can be strong in your own strength and accomplish all sorts of great things that the world admires and may award you for. But when you're gone, there will be a wasteland left behind of people you stepped on to get where you want and what you want. And absolutely no one will respect, truly like, or love you. Oh, and I believe Paul wrote a whole chapter in that first Corinthian letter about what love really is. And it has nothing to do with lifting up yourself. We find out that one of the major themes in 2 Corinthians is how Paul had to defend what God had called him to do. In the face of many in the church following this new crop of teachers and leaders, who Paul calls super or hyper apostles. And this was not a compliment. These men were leading people to lift up themselves in their own strength. Instead of living humbly and finding God faithful as they learned to better depend upon him. They were smooth yet tricky. They outwardly appeared strong and impressive, real professionals, educated, certified, and agreed. And don't forget, they were in Corinth, and Paul was not there at this time. There is something really important to understand about this super apostle type person. And our susceptibility to buy into what they're selling. Once this type of leader or teacher's eloquence helps you understand the importance of listening to their advice and skill and insight, their persuasiveness helps you accept their instruction on just about anything. That's the scary part. This is a very large part of what Paul deals with in 2 Corinthians. The structure of 2 Corinthians is really straightforward. In the first seven chapters, Paul defends his ministry, including loaded passages focusing on on the gospel. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he discusses the collection 
he's taking up, especially for the poor believers in the Jerusalem church. You might remember that was a big part toward the end of 1 Corinthians. In the closing chapters 10 through 13, Paul gives a vigorous defense of his apostleship. Now, as we look at the overall picture of this letter, it is easy to see how much Paul reveals about himself and how invested he was to care for and shepherd these people. But how could he do that in this letter? Well, he had to figure out what the most important thing was to address that would help the Corinthians see how much of the true gospel message they had been compromising in their own personal lives and so also in the life of the church. So this is no easy task Paul had begun. First, they must honestly sort out their own affections and admirations and inclinations. He starts off his letter by showing how God's comfort in and through our sufferings allows or equips us to show that comfort to others. So immediately, they must honestly think through and look into their own hearts to see what they really love, what really rules them, what their idols are, what their inclinations are. Because this is one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is so important. But it would be very easy thinking the way that they tended to do to write off any possibility of wanting to deal or understand with suffering and why God allows, us, allows it and uses it. This passage in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, provides a stark contrast to the idea that if you really have faith, nothing can touch you or bring you suffering. In other words, what Paul is getting ready to teach deals with reality. Do you see how the promises of a minute-by-minute victorious living with no discomfort, pain, or suffering are at the same time so enticing, but also so viciously false? Do you see how the presentation of the appearance of unlimited strength through any and all circumstances, just naturally, naturally caters to the super apostles' narrative? You see, they didn't ever appear to suffer anything. It was all a show. And Paul gives personal examples of his own afflictions to drive home his point. He also then states the reason that God works this way. This particular letter is known especially for how Paul reveals so much 
of his own heart, his own calling, and the way he felt about it all. Well, listen and follow along closely as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we go through this letter, 2 Corinthians, we must see and put away other false assumptions so common today about the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And then we must look deeper so we can see through some deceptions that have worked their way into our lives with us barely noticing. Over and over again, Paul helps his readers by providing what have become so many of the church's most beloved texts with multiple examples, even from his own life. Like what? Well, just in the first five chapters, we find these examples, just a few. There's many more, but these are all wonderful. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Also in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Also in chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Again in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we always are of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. 
and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In verses 14a and 15 of chapter 5, For the love of Christ controls us, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In chapter 5, verse 21, we find the gospel in one clear and very powerful verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Closing today with a slightly edited prayer from a fellow pastor used in his church last week, which helps our hearts cry out together for God's mercy as as we've seen so much happen, much of it disturbing in the last several weeks especially. Please bow your heads. O great God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created all things, the God above all gods, the God who was and is and is to come, the God who never changes, the God who never slumbers nor sleeps, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic with more than 100,000 lives lost in this country alone. We still hear of new cases, new hospitalizations, new deaths each day. Lord, have mercy. In the last three months, 40 million Americans have entered the ranks of the unemployed. Many who still have a job are scared. Others are anxious, depressed. Lord, have mercy. As states reopen some cities and neighborhoods, even some families and churches are getting upset at each other over masks or no masks. Reopen quickly or reopen slowly. COVID is the worst than you can think of, or this has been a massive overreaction. Lord, have mercy. As Christians, we have grieved to be separated from the people we love and care for. 
we have been forced to give up meeting together for a time. So much about ministry seems harder and more uncertain. We don't fully know when normal will return or what normal will look like or what to do in the meantime. Lord, have mercy. On June 1st, a white police officer in Minneapolis put his knee on the neck of a man for over eight minutes, murdering that black man made in the image of God, while three other officers did nothing to stop the injustice. Lord, have mercy. The anger and fear and pain felt in the black community isn't prompted by this one incident alone. Much of it comes out of the legacy of slavery. And too many times when power and force were used against them in ways that are evil and unjust. Lord, have mercy. Every time we witness another tragedy like this, we know it makes the difficult and honorable job of law enforcement almost impossible. Many police officers risking their lives to serve and protect will suffer unfairly because of actions done so far away from them, actions they condemn, actions outside their control. Lord, have mercy. And now we see dozens and dozens of our great cities being torn apart by senseless destruction and violence. Businesses have been burnt down, grocery stores destroyed, some neighborhoods ruined, lives threatened or lost. Lord, have mercy. You have our attention, O God. Give us ears to hear. What do you want to say to us in your word? What should we do? What needs to change? How can we help? Let us obey the sixth commandment by preserving the life of ourselves and others, but also resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions temptations and practices which contribute to the unjust taking away the life of any. Let our lives be marked by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. Let us forbear with others and demonstrate a readiness to be reconciled and a patient enduring and forgiving of injuries. Let us comfort the distress and protect and defend the innocent. We pray for our justice system to work tirelessly for all citizens. We pray for those living in utter chaos and darkness or facing the loss of property or loss of life in so many places. We pray for repentance for those who have sinned against others in thought, word, or deed. We pray for those who have responded in sin. And those of us 
who have harbored sin in our hearts towards others who seem to be on the other side, part of the other team, those who vote for the other party. We pray for the means necessary to give hope and healing and dignity and the feeling of safety for anyone living in fear in this land of the free and home of the brave. We pray for the bravery, safety, fortitude, and integrity of our law enforcement officers. Give local leaders wisdom, strength, integrity, and grace as they lead through these difficult days. We pray for our political, religious, and civic leaders. May they be humble, honest, measured, principled, open to good ideas wherever they come from, self-sacrificing, disciplined, courageous, and compassionate. Where we have such leaders, may we listen to them and follow them. Where our leaders do not exhibit these qualities, help them, O Lord, to change and repent. We seek the peace of all the cities in this great country. We weep, we lament, we mourn, but not as those who have no hope. May gospel beauty rise from these smoldering literal ashes. May truth triumph over lies and grace conquer lawlessness. May your people be one as you, O Father, and your Son are one. May the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, rise up as an example of love and with a message of salvation for a weary and war-torn world. Give us grace to serve you, O God, and if necessary, grace to suffer for what is right. Give us the peace and health and safety we do not deserve Give us the reformation and revival we need. Lord, have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.